Open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, that's page 1227 in those two Bibles. We're continuing on with our examination of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The next stop on this Roman postal route is the city of Sardis. Sardis is an interesting city. It's a city whose glory lay in its past. It was a very, at one time, a very important and wealthy city. It lay along an east-west commercial trade route. About 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, the city we looked at last time. The 6th century B.C. It was one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world. It was actually the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. But time and circumstances caused the city of Sardis to wane in its glory. Its peak, as I said, was in the 6th century by the time of the Roman period, the period covered here in the book of Revelation. The city was but a shadow of its former self. It was a uniquely situated city, though. Geographically, it lay on the northern spur of a mountain, Mount Tamolis, overlooked a fertile plain. On three sides of that northern or that spur that the city sat on, there was a, about a 1,500-foot, nearly vertical rock wall. So on three sides, the city had 1,500 feet of cliff to protect it, and its fourth side had a narrow and sloping pass, which was the access to the city. And so thus, it was very easily defended, made it a natural citadel overlooking a fertile plain down below. You can imagine as the caravans passed through the trade route underneath the watchful walls of this city, they collected much tribute along the way and the kingdom grew very, very wealthy. But there was a spirit of complacency that overtook this kingdom. I think because of its natural fortifications, there was this, there was this sense of complacency and, and the prevailing prosperity that caused the inhabitants to not be watchful as they should be, not be uh, vigilant or diligent in even protecting themselves. Amazingly, twice in the city's history, its impregnable walls were scaled. Small groups of elite soldiers, twice in its history, scaled those 1,500-foot cliffs, managed to climb the walls, gain access to the city, throw open its gates so that the invading army could march right in. The most fascinating thing of it all is that in both of those occurrences, there were no watchmen on the walls at all. They felt themselves so secure that it was unnecessary to even post a watchman. And so those elite soldiers managed to climb into the city unobserved. This was a city... It had fallen, as I said, from its former days of glory. By the time John writes here to this church, there is still a measure of wealth there, but it is clearly they're living in their past. At the time of John's writing, it is a 
textile manufacturing dying business that is generating revenues. Religiously, the city was devoted to the cult of Sibele, which was one of the ancient mystery religions of Asia. It was just a fascinating place. To the angel of the church in Sardis writes, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we have done in all of these churches, we will continue to do and examine this letter under these five facets that we've laid out for you. Five facets of Christ's examination of the church here at Sardis that we must gain an understanding of so that we can discern What it means to be a great church in the eyes of God. He has given us a mirror to examine our own church and our own hearts in the process. So let's look at that first facet together, the command. Jesus' command here in the first part of verse 1. Where he says to the angel or the pastor of the church in Sardis, writes, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars... It's an interesting way for Jesus to describe himself here as one who has the seven stars and the seven spirits of God. We know from uh, verse 20 in chapter 1 that the seven stars represent the pastors of the church, the messengers, the angels of the church. And some time ago we told you we think that means the actual pastors of the church. So what he's saying is that he has these pastors in his right hand. He holds the leadership of the church in his hand and he evaluates their ministry. And he's going to evaluate the ministry here, the church at Sardis. But beyond that, he uses the imagery of the seven spirits of God. What does that mean? Well, that should take us back to Zechariah chapter 4. Presumably you read Zechariah this past week in your through the Bible reading time. It takes us back into the fourth chapter of Zechariah where there Zechariah the prophet sees a vision of a lampstand that has seven lamps upon it. And there in Zechariah 4 and verse 6, the prophet identifies that lampstand for us as the Spirit of God. He says, this is the word of the Lord, the Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Beyond that, if we were to just slip over a page or so to chapter 4 and verse 5 of this letter here to the churches, 
In Revelation chapter 4 and in verse 5, we see the correspondence. Where it says, From the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so by combining John's words here and the words to the prophet Zechariah together, what we understand Jesus to be saying in Verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Revelation is that Jesus not only holds the leadership of the church in His right hand from an evaluative point of view, but He is the one also from whom proceeds the very Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. And by focusing on these two things, the evaluation of the church and the fact that He is the one who gives the Spirit, I think what He is communicating to this church here is that this is a church that is missing the Spirit of God. This is a church that has a huge deficit in spirit-controlled leadership. There is a lack of spirituality in this church. And as the rest of the verse will make clear as we begin to unpack it, there's plenty of activity, but it's not spirit-controlled activity going on. Now, in all of these churches, we have looked for a commendation, and frequently we have found one, right? But noticeably, and, and as we read through this, I hope you noticed, there was no con- commendation for this church, was there? There was nothing that Jesus could find that they were doing well. That should cause your uh, ears to perk up. Here is a church that is full of activity, yet Jesus finds nothing to commend them for. Beyond that, it is worth observing That there is no mention of those that are troubling the church. There's no mention here of false teachers. There's no mention of Gentile persecution. There's no mention of Jewish opposition as there were in the other churches. This church at Sardis has no commendation and it has no oppressors. No troublers. This is a church that apparently is at peace with its culture. This is a church that is comfortable. This is a church in which there is lots of activity going on, but significantly Jesus can find nothing to commend among all of that activity. And so he goes right into his condemnation. Again, look at verse four. He who has or verse one, rather, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. I know that. The people think you're doing really well. Name is, is communicating reputation. You have a reputation to be a happening place. First Church of Sardis, that's where you go, right? They got all the programs. This is a church that is known. Known, I think, certainly within the community there, the city of Sardis, but I think beyond that. Remember, there was a trade route that goes through this area. There are travelers that do come back and forth through there. And so the message, I think, is being carried out pretty widely. I think other churches of this general area would look to the church at Sardis and they say, yeah, that's a place to model our ministry after. That's a happening place. You have a name, you have a reputation that you are alive. 
that life and vitality are surging through you. The problem is, look again at the verse. You're dead. You're dead. You're like a beautiful mausoleum filled with dead men's bones. You have substituted activity for spirituality. Form for substance. You are like the city in which you are found. You are living in your glory days of the past. Thinking yourself still to be something when you are nothing. I cannot find a single thing to commend among you. All kinds of activity, yet it is superficial. It is spiritless. Ultimately, it is judged by Christ to be dead, worthless. The Holy Spirit has left this church and they don't even know it. They haven't even figured it out yet. They're like the ancient nation of Israel. When Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11, through the prophet, portrays for us the, the abandonment of the nation when the Spirit of God leaves the Holy of Holies, almost reluctantly as he gradually and slowly leaves the city. The amazing thing there, too, is that he left the Holy of Holies in 592 B.C., but it wasn't until 586 that the temple was destroyed. For, so for a period of six years, they were carrying on like they were still worshiping Yahweh, and he was gone. He was gone. The same thing has happened here at Sardis. They're carrying on. They've got plenty of activity. They've got programs galore. It's a happening place, and it's spiritually empty. It's all on the horizontal. It's all meaningless. Lifeless. Superficial. What are the characteristics? What are some of the characteristics, at least, of a lifeless church? What does a lifeless church look like? Well, here are some suggestions for you. A lifeless church has a greater concern for maintaining the past than it does with engaging the future. A lifeless church is more interested in what went on in the past than it is with what the future looks like. In a lifeless church, you'll hear lots of people saying, remember when? Remember when we used to do this? Or remember when we were doing that? It was always back there somewhere. We remember that. The forms may be still going on today, but the power was back there. Lifeless church is a church that's resistant to change or new ideas. The expression you hear around a lifeless church is, we've always done it this way, right? This is the way we do it. Resistant to change, resistant to new ideas. A lifeless church lacks strategic vision. They can't see beyond tomorrow. All of their attention is focused on today. Just keep it going today. Just keep the plates spinning. Keep the balls in the air. Keep the programs going. Keep the people occupied. And maybe they won't figure it out. That there's no substance underneath it. They lack strategic vision. They have a preoccupation with the material world. Conversation around lifeless churches revolves around buildings and budgets. 
How much money is in the building fund? What are the offerings this week? What are the expenses? Were you positive cash flow or negative cash flow? Meetings of the leadership teams are, are preoccupied with the maintenance of the facilities. These are marks of lifeless churches. Lifeless churches have a lack of biblical prayer. And that doesn't mean prayer is not talked about. What it means is that prayer is not engaged in. People will talk about the need to pray. Yeah, we need to pray about this. We should pray about that. But it never happens. These are lifeless churches. Lifeless churches have a coldness to the Word of God. They don't hear, not with their spiritual ears. Lifeless churches, like lifeless people, are cold to the Word of God. Lifeless churches have unsanctified membership. Unsanctified membership. That is, they have membership that have a Sunday face and then a Monday through Friday face. They have a Sunday language and they have a Monday through Friday language. If you bump into people from lifeless churches throughout the work week, you're not sure where they go and who they belong to. On Sunday they look one way and then on the rest of the week they act and look another way. Unsanctified membership. Lifeless churches have level or declining memberships. Lifeless churches just stagnate. As I say, it took six years for them to figure out that the Spirit had left the Holy of Holies in ancient Israel. Lifeless churches can go on for a long time. Void of the Spirit. Lifeless churches have a homesteading mentality. Lifeless churches have a homesteading mentality. They say things like, this is my church. Or they say things like, you are in my pew. And we laugh. But that very expression has been used in this body within the last 12 months. Lifeless churches have a homesteading mentality. And lastly, lifeless churches are loaded with activity. Loaded with activities. Meetings, potlucks, programs for all ages and all stages. But underneath it all, there's no vitality. It is a superficial Christianity. And beloved, it's not just churches because churches are collections of what? Christian people. So lifeless churches are made up of lifeless people. Those who appear to have a vibrant walk with Christ. Those that are involved in activities. But there's no substance underneath it. They're dead to the things of the Spirit. On the outside, everything looks good. On the inside, it's full of dead men's bones. All kinds of uncleanness. The church of Sardis is in serious trouble. This church is tottering on the edge of extinction. Look again what he says. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. But all is not lost. There is a way back. 
There is a way back here for this church and for the people that make this church. And through a series of five corrective commands, Jesus outlines for them the difficult road back. Well, let's look at that together. Jesus' correction for this church, verses 2 and 3. Five corrective commands that outline the road to recovery for those that are living lifeless Christianity. His first divine prescription here is watchfulness. Verse 2, he says, wake up. They are to recognize the problem. Recognize the problem. Grammatically, what this, the imperative wake up here, it, it's, it's a little under-translated. What it, what it, a more paraphrased translation would be, wake up and keep on watching. That would be a good way to look at this. Wake up, but not just wake up once, but wake up, stay awake, keep on watching. Recognize the problem. Jesus is calling him here to a radical reversal of the prevailing attitude of complacency and superficiality that characterizes this fellowship. They are unaware presently of the danger that is facing them. They are on the verge of spiritual extinction and they don't even know it. This, by the way, this particular uh, imperative to them to wake up or to recognize the problem should should resound with them. This is the the city that was conquered twice, I told you, right? While it slept. This was the city that lay behind the impregnable walls atop a 1,500-foot cliff in which no one could possibly get in and conquer them. And so they didn't even bother to set guards on the walls and the whole city slept. And twice the enemies crept in and conquered them. This should strike a nerve or a bell with them. Recognize the problem. Wake up. Be watchful. Keep on watching. Because, beloved, spiritual slumber is a deadly enemy. Spiritual slumber is a deadly enemy. Do you find yourself falling asleep while reading the Bible? Do you find yourself falling asleep while praying? Some of you find yourself falling asleep during church while preaching. Social activities don't make it. The life of the Spirit is more than the social activities of the fellowship. If you find the social activities more appealing than the preaching, watch out. Watch out. You're drifting off to sleep. Wake up, he says. Stay awake. Keep on watching. Recognize your problem. You are dozing in the presence of the Almighty. Secondly, don't give up. The second step on the road to recovery is don't give up. He says, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. Breathe life back into those few remaining elements of your Christian life that still have a spark associated with them. Jesus, he's personally investigated the deeds of this church. Look, verse 2 again, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Jesus has undergone a thorough evaluation of the church and its membership. And they do not measure up. It's not a quantity issue. They've got plenty of stuff going on. It's a quality issue. What they have is devoid of the Spirit. So he says to them, blow some life back into this thing. 
Don't give up on it all. Back in the early 1980s, I joined the current trend, at least in New England, which was to try to heat your home with a wood-burning stove. It was kind of a quaint idea. So we had a wood-burning stove in the living room. And uh, every night when I got home from work, I would split the, the firewood and carry it in and stack it so Carol would have firewood all day long. And then at night, I would fill the stove and bank the fire and, and go to bed and, and um, get up very early the next morning and try to get that little remaining ember to spring back to life so I could feed in the small kindling wood and then the logs and then I could go off to work. It wasn't take many months before I understood why central heat was invented and what a marvelous invention that really is. In order to uh, <clears throat> try to uh, keep the house at all comfortable, you had to have so much heat in the living room you would want to sit around in your underwear and in the back bedroom you could freeze a glass of water on the nightstand. So it was not a really great way to heat a home. But the picture of of this guy on his hands and knees at 4.30 in the morning blowing on the little coal, the little ember, to try to you know, bring it back, to strengthen the things that remain is the picture that Jesus is giving here. This church is down to its last embers. It's about to be completely extinguished, completely snuffed out. If something radical doesn't happen soon, the fire is going out. Strengthen the things that remain which are about to die, he says, verse 2. My question for you is, is how hotly are you burning for Jesus Christ today? I'm not asking you how active you are in the church. That's not the question, because clearly plenty of activity does not equate with spirituality. The question that I have for you is, how hot is your passion for Jesus Christ? Is it hot enough to catch something else on fire, or is it cold and dull and about to go out? Wake up, he says. Strengthen the things that remain. Third, keep the gospel central. Keep the gospel central. Verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. This is not a command, by the way, to remember some event from the past or, or just something they heard in the past, but it's the idea to continually keep in the forefront of your mind your long-standing gospel heritage. To pull it forward and keep it forward in the very front lobe of your brain. Keep the gospel central. There's a very fine book I would commend to any of you. It's called Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. It is available in our bookstore and I would commend that book to you because it's a book that is devoted to the importance of preaching the gospel to the Christian. You know, we think of the gospel typically as that which is for the unsaved. And it is indeed the good news for the unsaved, but it is the good news for the redeemed as well. The gospel is something we need to know intimately and preach to ourselves regularly. So what is this gospel that we need to know? Well, how about this? Let me see if I can summarize this for you. While you were in open defiance against your Creator, He in His mercy 
reached out and provided an innocent substitute to bear the penalty for your sin. That substitute, that innocent substitute was His own Son who willingly died in your place according to the eternal plan of God whereby He graciously chose to save His own enemies. And because you had no interest in Him, He sought you out. And through His Holy Spirit, He created in you the faith needed to embrace the gift He offered. In effecting your salvation, God not only freed you from the penalty of sin, but also from its enslaving power. That you now have access to the power necessary to say no to sin. But when you fail to say no to sin, God feels no wrath towards you. Instead, He floods you with His grace in order to maintain your justified position before Him. Conversely, when you say no to sin and yes to God, He does not love you one bit more. He neither loves you less when you fail nor more when you obey. His love for you is perfect in Christ. And His love for you does not end with this moment or this event of salvation, but it extends to every circumstance and every trial every difficulty of your life, whereby He takes those trials and He subjugates them and forces them to do good to us. Therefore, all that comes into our lives, all the bad stuff that comes to us, God actively takes and makes it used for our good. Someday, God will remove you from this life, either by death or by His return in power. And then your struggle against sin will end. And you will enjoy unhindered fellowship forever with your Creator, your Redeemer, and your friend. This is the Gospel. This is what is the good news that we are called upon to take to all the nations and we are called upon to daily remind ourselves of as well. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Fourth step along the way is we must obey the gospel. Jesus says and keep it. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it. You know, gospel words alone are not enough. Mere assent to the gospel truth is not enough. It must be embraced by faith. It must affect the way we live our lives. They must combine gospel truth with active faith. Over in Luke chapter 11, Verse 28, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. 
So we must obey the gospel. And finally, the fifth step on this road to recovery is repentance. Again, look at verse 3. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. And repent. The final step in the road of recovery when you have a coldness in your heart is that you must break from the old way and begin the new way. You must turn 180 degrees. Turn from your old sinful life and turn to the life of God. And this, beloved, is probably the hardest step along the way. And the reason this is the hardest step is because you and I are natural bargainers. We want to bargain with God. Do I really have to turn 180 degrees? How about 90? 120? How about 150? How much obedience will you accept and let me off the hook? Right? Partial obedience, that's what we want. But God will not accept partial obedience. Notice what he says here. He, he cuts off for this church all avenues of negotiation. And he announces a very severe warning to them. Verse 3 again. And you will, he says, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at the hour which I will come upon you. If they refuse to heed his warning and return to the path of righteousness, he is threatening them with a scatological judgment. The simile of Christ coming like a thief, right? That means unexpectedly is used exclusively in the New Testament to speak of His second coming. It is an expression that is used over and over again by all the various writers, and it always refers to the second advent of Christ. And that's what it refers to here as well. The message to this church is that the return of Jesus is imminent. The judge stands at the door. If they do not return to the path of righteousness, then he will come in an unexpected moment like a thief in the night and they will not know the hour that it comes upon them. They will be swept away in judgment. The message for this church is to wake up. Wake up. Return to the path of righteousness. But there is a remnant here. God always has a remnant, doesn't He? There's a remnant here in the church at Sardis as well. We see that in Jesus' challenge. Verses 4 through 6. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with Me in white, for they are worthy. These few faithful ones are described here by Jesus as people who have not soiled their garments. The word soiled, it means to defile, to smear, to pollute. This would be something that would, that would, um, would resonate with them because of their associations with the, with the woolen trade. The idea of the manufacturing and the dyeing of woolen products. They would understand what he's talking about here. This would be familiar to them. Now, there are many different opinions as to what it means to soil one's garments. I think the best way to understand this is just a general, or not soil one's garments, let me put it that way, is just a general reference to a life that is characterized by purity. I think he's speaking here about a life 
of general purity, not perfection, but a life of general purity, a life that is kept clean from the defilements of the world. Over in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. And I said to him, my Lord, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Over in uh, chapter 22, Revelation, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. This idea of washing the robes or washing the garments is a reference, I think, just to, to life in general. It's a life of, of purity. A life that has not been given over to the defilements of the world. If that is a true interpretation here, then I think what Jesus is promising these few believers, this remnant here, is that if they will continue to keep themselves clean, Jesus will replace their humanly clean garments with heavenly clean ones. Alright, verse 4, I have a few people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. If they maintain their purity now, when Christ returns, He will clothe them in purity. This is a call for them to persevere. To hang tough. To continue on with Christ. It's also a call to those who are trapped in sin to, to turn from it and they too can have white garments. Those who walk in purity in the present will experience complete holiness in the future. This understanding, by the way, of verse 4 here, I think is reinforced by the promise that he gives in verse 5. He offers a threefold promise of blessing here to the overcomer. Right? He who overcomes, we said the he who overcomes, the overcomer by definition is the believer, the one who is in faith union with Jesus Christ. To the overcomer, a threefold promise is given. He shall be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The first part of the promise here is essentially a repetition of what has gone on in verse 4. He says that I will give you white garments. I will clothe you in purity and holiness. If you will maintain your walk with me, this is what you have coming to you. Secondly, I will not erase your name from the book of life. Those who persevere, those who show themselves genuine, Jesus is promising them that they will surely receive the promise of eternal life. Beloved, this Verse 5, this is a threefold promise of blessing. Some would think this is a threat built in here, right? If you don't continue, I'm going to get a big eraser and I'm going to knock you right out of the book. This is a promise of blessing. This is not a threat. The book of life is referred to five times in the book of Revelation. It's instructive enough for us to take a look at those. So go with me to chapter 13. In verse 8. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship Him. 
Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world. And the... let me try that again. And all the... everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. He will make war with those whose names are not written. I should have picked up verse 7. Go over to uh, 17 and verse 8. He says there, The beast that you saw was and is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Chapter 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from things which are written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then chapter 21, verse 27 talking about the celestial city. And he says, Nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is this book of life? A book that, according to these later chapters of Revelation, was written from the foundation of the world. It is a record, beloved, of the names of those who will enjoy the fruit of salvation. It is a listing of all those who before the foundation of the world were chosen out by God for salvation. It's a listing of the elect. The Lamb's book of life is a listing of the elect. So here in chapter 3, there is a promise here that if you show yourself through perseverance to be genuine, you will be there in that book of life. Some people want to turn this into a threat. Some people want to take this promise of blessing and they want to make it a threat, right? I will not erase him. Meaning that if you don't shape up, I'm going to erase you out of the book. They look to Exodus chapter 32 and verse 33 to try to find support for that understanding. There in Exodus 32:33, the Lord tells Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. They also cross-reference over to Psalm 69 and verse 28 where the psalmist prays that the enemies of God will be erased from the book. But the book being talked about there is, is the book of the living. It is those that have physical life. The book here talked about in Revelation is the book of the elect. It is those that have spiritual life. This is not a threat. This is a promise of blessing. This is an encouragement to the faithful. This is not a warning to the disobedient. For the faithful, you will receive garments of white. For the faithful, you will enjoy the fruit of your salvation. And thirdly, for the faithful, I will confess your name before my Father and before His angels. You will have a permanent place in heaven. Christ will be your advocate. Some writers think that when he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, that he's talking about Christ actually reading out of the book of life the names of the elect. Perhaps so. Perhaps so.
Beloved, there is a danger of superficial Christianity. For us here, it's a real danger. We live in a time of when we are at peace with our culture. We live in a time when there are no there is no persecution upon the church. We are generally well thought of. We reside in prosperity. There is a danger of superficiality for all of us. And the danger lies close at hand. We need to be reminded that complacency kills. Complacency kills. Compromise destroys. We are called to live as salt and light in a world that is dark and rotting. We are called to live counter-culturally. We are called to live in such a way that we are not comfortable in this world, that we are but travelers, alien strangers passing through. Maybe as you examine your own life, you find that you have grown a little cold to the things of God. The fire is not as hot as it once was. You can remember the day when you burned hot for Christ. But now the responsibilities of work, the pressures of parenthood, maybe the physical ailments that have become your lot in life have have come upon you in such a way that they have dulled the flame. You're kind of living in the past. Grown a little cold to the things of God. Still active in His church. It's not that you've withdrawn. But the inside stuff's just not what it once was. You need to immediately, immediately turn back. You need to wake up and stay awake. You need to return to the gospel path. You need to preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of who you are in Christ and what He has done for you that your heart would overflow in love for Him. Take His correction. Return to the fold. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that which You already know. And that is that there are periods of coldness and dullness that come over our hearts. There are those periods of time, our Father, when we don't feel like reading the Scriptures. We're too preoccupied to pray. We're too busy to spend time with You. We still show up to church, our Father. We still partake of the activities. We still 
coldly mouth the words of the songs and perhaps even scribble a few notes during the sermon. But it's all on the surface. It's all superficial. Our Father, we pray this morning for those among us who are right now in that place in life. That they find themselves a little cold inside. They can remember the day when they burned hot for Christ, but it's not today. For those that know the discouragement that can come. The guilt feelings when we begin to heap it upon ourselves and even question what kind of Christian are we? We don't even care so much anymore. Lord God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would drive this message deep into their hearts. Not just that they would be condemned, but that they would know the way of escape. That they would see the hope available to them in Christ and that they would reach out to receive it. Lord God, may You rescue those who are struggling. May You rekindle the flame passion for the things of Christ. May they recapture that which they once knew on that day so long ago when they first came to see that Jesus Christ had died for them. Work amongst your people for your name's sake. Amen.